I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This morning we are going to transition uh, into chapter 4 as we continue to sprint through this sermon series. Who laughed? It may not feel like it to you, but it feels like it to me, that we are sprinting because there is so much that we haven't touched. As we transition this morning into chapter 4, we we are turning a corner where everything up to this point has been about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ. And now he transitions to talking about, okay, so because of who you are, here's how you live. All this wonderful stuff that you've been given and that you've been made is now to be embodied in a life well lived in following our God in worship, discipleship, and mission. So the title this morning is Extravagant Grace Embodied in Life. Extravagant Grace Embodied in Life. I'm going to begin reading back in chapter 3 verse 20 and read through four, uh, chapter 4 verse 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Heavenly Father, as we approach you through your word, we need you to speak deeply into our minds, into our hearts, and into our our wills, into our intentions and our attitudes, Lord. And we need that every day, but we need that especially this morning as the content that is put before us here is some of the most challenging to us as your people. As the things you say to us this morning, Lord, are the kinds of things that we can so quickly and so easily come up with reasons not to listen. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would help me and that you would help your people to trust you enough this morning that we would make ourselves vulnerable before your word, even as it will not be easy and yet will facilitate that blessing that Christ has purchased by his blood the everlasting peace between God and sinners and between sinners reconciled together in Jesus Christ. 
May your word facilitate within our fellowship that unity that is like the dew of Hermon, that cools and refreshes heavenly pilgrims sojourning through the wilderness of this world. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I haven't spoken much about it up until this point because I wanted to really wait until now to remind you of what we have titled this sermon series in Ephesians. It is always difficult to come up with a title because you're trying to capture in a short, uh, memorable phrase the the content uh, of something as deep and wide as this letter has been so far and as it will continue to be as we work through it. But if you don't remember, the title of the sermon series is Our Shared Life and Mission with the Peacemaking Christ. And as we transition from from who Christ is and, and what he has done and who we are, In him, Paul is moving us to to focus in on how to live out the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. The most simple way I could think to describe that calling as it is unfolded here, and there are so many different there were so many there are so many different ways to describe this, and there were so many different angles, but I chose this one, our shared life and mission with the peacemaking Christ. Now, I chose that before I ever arrived here in Dallas. If you recall, when I first came, the original intention was to preach through this letter to the Ephesians. But because of COVID and other things, we had to deal with some other stuff, and we have now come back to this. But I chose to describe it this specific way because it speaks to the history of this specific congregation. A congregation who loves God. A congregation who has been loved deeply and blessed immeasurably by God. And yet a congregation that has a history of finding it difficult to express the unity that Christ has purchased. And this is not to point fingers. This is not to try to diminish or or to, to denigrate. It is to point out something that seems to be true so that we can take this extravagant grace of God in Christ that we have just spent months looking at and we can see how this speaks directly to what it means to be a church. That unity is not something that we have to develop. Unity is something that Christ has created. The question is, for you and for me, are we going to cultivate the growth of what what Christ has created, or are we going to Hopefully, not on purpose, but still, are we going to do the things that actually 
make that unity difficult to maintain. As we saw from, from Psalm 133, it is part, Psalm 133 is, is part of these, these psalms of ascent that the pilgrims of God would, would sing and recite together uh, at different times throughout the year as, as they would go on pilgrimage from all around the, the promised land, but also coming from, from um, all over the countries in the surrounding greater Mediterranean region as they would come to Jerusalem and come to the temple to participate in these special celebrations of God throughout the different seasons of the year. They, God had provided his, his pilgrim people words for them to express themselves to him and to one another, to be an encouragement to come to the Lord to ascend the hill of the Lord and to, to go up to the temple to, to behold the face of God through that sacrificial system that he had provided. If you have been to Israel, or if you haven't, or if you're planning on it, as we talked about yesterday, one of the things that you will note about that, that area is it is an extremely dry and arid land. It is really dry. That's hard for us Southerners to imagine. You can go outside and not immediately sweat. It's possible. There are places in the world where even I can do that. And this is one of those places. In fact, if you spend any time outside, they tell you, you, you need to continuously be taking in water or you will be dehydrated in a second. In this dry and, and arid uh, uh, land, what we are told is, is that God, through his presence and through his power, is a blessing to his people because of he has bound himself to us through his covenants. And that binding of himself to his people binds his people together. So that as a pilgrim, you are not sojourning to see the Lord on your own. You are part of a people who have a, a shared calling as those who have been redeemed out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought into the kingdom of God. This is what the, the psalm is referring to. And the mountains of Hermon were, were very tall. And quite often, or quite typically, there was snow on the ground year round. And so where could you go to, to find some cool? Where could you go to find precipitation? You could go to these mountaintops. And it was a refreshing place to be. The oil on the beard. It's not just beard oil like you see sold today, but it was, it was oil that was necessary to take stuff that was drying out, that was becoming brittle. And you would apply it to the beard. You would apply it to the skin, right? They didn't have the, you know, the Jurgens. All right, fine. Brought to you by, this sermon is brought to you by Jurgens. They didn't have that daily stuff, but they had these oils, and they had to use them or their skin would dry out. Now, if you've ever been dehydrated and experienced dry, cracking skin, is it a very pleasant experience? 
Absolutely not. And without partaking of these blessings that God had for his people, that would be the existence. And so at the metaphorical letter or the typological level, what, what we're seeing in this psalm is that as the people of God together sojourn through the wilderness to come to the temple mount and to come into the presence of God and to experience his worship through the sacrificial system, that that was refreshing, it was cooling, it was moisturizing, it was the pleasantness that came from being bound to God and one another through covenant. And that the people of God need that within this world. Now, why am I saying all this? Because what Paul is doing here as he transitions into Ephesians 4 is notice that he is is calling us to a couple of things. And the main thing right up front is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. This idea of walking, he has already used it. Back in chapter 2, as he was describing the life that is lived out when someone is dead in sin and trespasses. That this idea of walking is a way of describing how you live. It's also a way of describing why you live. What are the motivations? What, what is it that is giving you purpose? What is it that is giving you strength and power? And that for the unbeliever who is dead in sins and trespasses, their purpose is lived out under the, the constraints of their sin. So that they live as those who are under the authority of the evil one. They live as those who are slaves to the sin that is manifest in their desires, in, in, in uh, the, the, the cravings that they have as sinners, that this is the existence. But what he has said here is that something has changed in Jesus Christ. And now, instead of walking according to the constraints of sin and death, rather than walking under the authority of the evil one, rather rather than walking as one who is enslaved to passions and desires and cravings of, of of the evil world, what he says is we are to walk according to a new way of existence. When you read throughout the Old Testament, walking is one of the primary metaphors that is used to describe the followers of God in this life. When you read the book of Genesis, for example, uh, and if you want, go home today and read the book of Genesis and take note of how many times the word walk is used. Abraham was one who God called out of the the pagan idolatry of, of his homeland, drew drew Abraham to himself and then said, I've got a promised land for you over here. Follow me as I take you there and then wait for me once you are there. And the whole existence of Abraham from that point is he's called out and called to. 
And we see that Abraham follows the Lord and he eventually ends up in the promised land. And then the entire time that Abraham is in the promised land, he is constantly on the move. He is described as constantly walking before the Lord or walking after the Lord. He never has a permanent residence in the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews explains to us why. Because Abraham was looking for a cities whose foundations come from God. Abraham knew that the promised land that he was in was not the fulfillment of the promised land that was to come. He was looking for something beyond that land of Palestine when he was living at that time. He was looking for something eternal that would come from God. And his existence was one of pilgrimage. He was constantly on the move. That's why he lived in tents, because you could, you could um, you know, take tents down, put them up, you can travel with them, and he is constantly moving around. This idea of walk for us is a reminder of the calling that we have in Jesus Christ to now live in a different way than how we were living when we were dead in sins and trespasses. And we do this not only as individuals, we do this as a corporate body under the direction of of our head, Jesus Christ. And so Paul, as he begins to unfold for us this new way of living, notice that he starts with that famous theological term, that, that one of the most important theological terms that you'll find in all the Bible. The word therefore. Because everything that he is about to say about how to live out the new purpose and the new existence as the people of God is built upon everything that he has just said about who we are in Jesus Christ. And so what has Paul unfolded for us so far? Well, let's take a, a quick brief glance and, and remind ourselves that he has said that we, because of the work of God in Jesus Christ, now exist to the praise of God's glorious grace because God has bestowed upon us this extravagant grace. What is the extravagance of the grace? Well, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us by choosing us. He has blessed us by adopting us and, and making us his sons. He has blessed us by redeeming us through the substitutionary uh, death of his son. He has blessed us by forgiving us all our trespasses. He has blessed us by lavishing on us the riches of his eternal grace. He has blessed us by revealing himself to us and his eternal purposes for us. He has revealed to us, by the way, that his purposes are to unite all things in Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. He has blessed us by giving us an inheritance with the saints in light, bringing us out of darkness and into the light. He has blessed us by filling us with the Holy Spirit, who is a down payment and seal of the heavenly realities. 
He has blessed us by enlightening our hearts, providing a spirit of wisdom and revelation, blessing us with knowledge, making known to us the immeasurable power of his greatness to us. How immeasurable is that power? Well, it's the power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. He has blessed us by uniting us to himself in union and communion that Jesus considers himself incomplete without. He has brought us out of death and into life. What kind of life? Heavenly, eschatological life. He has made us alive together with Christ. He has raised us up. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, making us the eternal workmanship of his immeasurable riches in kindness. And he has done this, not just individually, but corporately. He has drawn all of us into into the commonwealth of Israel, binding himself to us through the covenants of promise, dwelling with us, filling us with hope, bringing us near. He has reconciled us to God, killing the hostility between sinners and God and fulfilling the law for us. He has reconciled us to one another, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. He has made peace by becoming our peace. He has provided equal and complete access to God. We are no longer strangers and aliens to God's presence and purposes, but we are now being built together into a dwelling place for God. We are now part of the eschatological temple of God. He has taken the least of us. He has taken us who are the least of the saints and given us the privilege to become proclaimers of all the riches of his glorious grace. Our lives participate in the eternal mission of the triune God to bear witness to his glory and to draw others into the praise of his grace. We even bear witness to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places as we do this. And he has blessed us with the boldness and confident access that we have through prayer. Prayer that strengthens the inward man uh, with the power of the spirit despite the outward circumstances. Prayer that connects us with the living Christ dwelling within our hearts so that we experience his presence and power. Prayer that roots us and grounds us in the incomprehensible, never-ending love of Christ. Prayer that fills us with the fullness of God. Which God? Well, the God who transcends anything that we can think or ask because he is far more abundant. Beloved, what he has been telling us from the beginning is we have this shared life now with Christ and through Christ, with the Trinity and with one another. And he has told us that his purposes in doing this is to be known, to be praised, to be witnessed to, because he is uniting all things in heaven and on earth. And so Paul could not have used more perfect words to now implore us as God's people to live up to that calling. But to tell us that the calling we have 
is a calling we are to live out. He says we are to walk worthy of this calling. What is our calling? It is a heavenly calling. It is a heavenly calling in which we bear witness to what God has united in heaven and on earth. Part of our calling, beloved, and as it is a heavenly calling, as he says, is we are no longer aliens and strangers to God. Because we are now aliens and strangers to the prince of the power of the air. We are now aliens and strangers to to life that is constrained by sin and death. We are now strangers to, to life that is lived out enslaved to the passions and desires of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the things that we are aliens and strangers from because we are those who have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Beloved, have you ever realized that your very existence as one who has, is in Christ, that you You are already a place within this world where God has united heaven and earth. That's your existence. And when we as a church gather together and bear witness to these realities as as we are here and as as we sing and as we pray and as we worship and as we learn from one another and as we smile at one another and as we try to encourage one another, as we are that balm to one another who are coming from out of the dry, arid places in order to be refreshed with that moisturizing uh, uh, flow of God's grace from the heavenly throne that we are right now, we are this place where heaven and earth have been united in Jesus Christ. And so live in a way that shows that. That's what Paul is saying. You are the union of heaven and earth because you are a heavenly people who are still living here on earth. And just as Abraham sojourned looking for the promised land that was to come, beloved, you and I sojourn through this world as those who are already participants in the world to come. What does that mean? It means you have been given not only the privilege, but you have been given the power to manifest what God already counts you to be, he's given you the power to manifest that now. And there is nothing that is of this world that can get in the way of you manifesting the world to come. Oh, actually there is. I forgot. It's you. And it's me. And so what Paul does here as he begins to unfold this amazing privilege that flows out of this incomprehensible power of us manifesting to God, manifesting to one another, manifesting to the watching world, manifesting even to the the authorities and powers of the heavenly places as we bear witness to this new life 
in Jesus Christ. What he calls us to do is begin by reflecting on some of our favorite topics to discuss. Notice here in chapter 4, he tells us to focus in on humility, gentleness, patience, and unity. He doesn't go into techniques. He doesn't go into strategies. He doesn't go into a list, a how-to list, 10 ways to manifest the heavenly life now. What he does is he unfolds for us the absolute importance of character, of the development of who we are, the development of who God counts us to be as we struggle with the reality of not living up yet to who he counts us to be. Do you realize that in terms of your heavenly citizenship, that in Jesus Christ, God considers you to be as humble as Christ. He considers you to be as as gentle and meek as Christ. He considers you to be as patient as Christ. He considers you to be as unified with Christ. That's who he counts us to be. And what Paul says is on the power of what God has done and is doing, strive to reflect these inner realities outward. And so let's quickly look at at these, these four things. Humility. Humility here is speaking of the denial of self-centeredness. It is humility is a way of expressing a denial of self-interest. And to put it another way, that what he is talking about with humility is as he describes in Philippians chapter 2 that you consider others as more important than yourself. Have you done that this week? I haven't. There, there were a couple blips, but they quickly passed. But considering others as more important than yourself. Why? Because the Christ who was God and who is worthy of all praise and glory set that aside for a time and came and was a servant, serving even to the point of death. Beloved, that's the Christ who lives in you. And the humility that Paul calls you to is not a humility that you generate within yourself. It is a humility in which you open yourself up to allowing Christ to manifest his humility in and through you. Paul says, exercise the mind of Christ, which is yours. This means you have to consciously make the decision that you're going to strive as you cultivate the life of Christ within you to consider others more important than yourself. That is really, really tricky, isn't it? And if it was left up to us to generate this, it would be impossible. But instead, open yourself up 
to the Christ who through the Spirit dwells within you and is fortifying you to bear witness to his humility. And we'll talk more about this as we go. But it means to put to death arrogance. It's to put to death that natural desire that you and I have because of the remaining sin within us to parade ourselves in front of one another. It is to put to death the longing that we have for recognition, the longing that we have to have things revolve around us, to put to death our desires unless unless they are God's desires, to put to death our preferences unless they are God's preferences. And I can tell you that every single argument or fight or whatever that has happened in your life, in my life, and in the life of this congregation has come because we did not put to death the desire of self-centeredness, recognition, and preferences. I can guarantee it. Put to death when you feel that desire welling up within you that I want things to revolve around me or I want things to revolve around what I like or what I think should be going on. Put that to death. And one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, is this what God wants? Is what I want what God wants? And then ask a couple of people that you trust that question and be willing to hear the answer. Because one of the things that we're really good at is taking our preferences and finding somewhere in the Bible to support it and then being like, well, of course I want what God wants. And then you use that as a hammer to crush the people around you. What the gospel does is not, is not hammer nails into the dirt because the nails have been hand, hammered into Christ. And what that has left us with is manifesting the new life that is revealed through his resurrection out of death. You see, what humility does is it puts arrogance down, it lifts others Humility, he says. We have to be in alignment with God and with his interests. And this is not attractive to you or to me. And it is certainly not attractive to the world. You know that in the day in which Paul was writing this in the Greco-Roman world, one of the things they mocked the most about Christians was humility. Humility had no place in the Greco-Roman world. It was a world that was based on strength and power and not being vulnerable and not being weak, certainly not being seen as weak. It was to to put the interests of of the Greco-Roman world first and to align yourself with those purposes. and, And the more you did that, you had the promise of rising in the ranks. You would get wealthier. You'd have more influence. You would would develop more power and persuasion. And you could be one of those movers and shakers in life. The Greco-Roman world hated humility. You know what was the number one factor that led 
to the explosion of growth in the church in the Greco-Roman world? It was their humility. It caused them to stand out. Their existence was one of stark contrast to an existence based on strength and power and influence and persuasion. Instead, they were vulnerable to the society and they took care of the vulnerable of society. They used the power that they did have to raise those who were rejects and to raise them up and to provide them acceptance. The Christians were the ones who were known to go to the trash heaps that were outside of the cities where people would take unwanted babies and where they would take unwanted elderly people who were, who were just, you know, creating problems for the family. They, they would take these babies, they would take these elderly people and take them out to these trash heaps and leave them. And the point was that they were going to die. Well got rid of that economic strain on the family. The Christians would be there waiting. And as the babies were brought, as the elderly were brought, the Christians would receive them into their fellowship, take them home and take care of them. Would show them the extravagant grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. We have a huge temptation away from humility as Americans. He says to pursue humility, gentleness. Gentleness here does not mean that you're, you know, the Jesus meek and mild of some of the children's Sunday school songs. Meekness is not mildness. Meekness is strength that is under control. What is being talked about here in this word gentle is the same word that would be used to talk about breaking an animal so that it was no longer a danger to those around them and instead could be used to, to do uh, good service and work, that, they, that this dangerous animal could now become useful. We use this or, or think about it in terms of horses. Wild horses, if you get near them, they will kill you. And yet that same horse, when it becomes broken, can give you life by working and being a part of that community. And what we are being reminded of here is that what it means to be new in Jesus Christ is part of what has to happen, beloved, is you and I have to be broken for God. He has to break us of the arrogance and the self-centeredness. He has to break us, not because he wants to belittle us and make us feel bad, but because that is the process by which our lives and our hearts are open to him to become useful in serving him within this world. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Rather than being overbearing, we are to be forbearing. Think about that the next time a discussion pops up about masks, about COVID-19, about 
music in the church, about how you dress when you go to church, about anything that involves us living together in Christ. Everything can become this thing that we use to to lift ourselves up by putting other people down when the opposite is the reality. Not to be overbearing, but to be forbearing. Patience and unity. Notice here he says, eager to maintain the peace of Christ. Not just willing, not just when it suits your schedule, not just when it suits the topic of whatever's going on, but all the time in everything that you are and are doing in the church, you are eager to do it in a way that maintains the peace that Christ has already created. Ask yourself, the next time you have that conversation, the next time you have that phone call, the next time that there's gossip, the next time that you're attempted to reveal the things that you've been freed from in Christ, ask yourself, in, my, in, in these words, am I maintaining the peace that Christ achieved through his death? Or am I propping myself up, propping my preferences up, propping you know, what I think should be going up. Ask yourself that simple question. Are these words, are these intentions, my attitudes, are these things in service to the Lord in order to build up Christ and his body? Or are they part of tearing it down? We bear witness. We bear witness through putting on the humility, meekness, enduring patience, and the peacemaking Christ. That's your reason for existence as a heavenly pilgrim sojourning through this dry, arid desert wilderness looking for the new world that is to come as one who already participates in its realities and so give your time and your energy your talents and your treasures to manifesting the new world now and put to death all these different things that tempt you to be witness bearing to this dying desert world that is being crushed under the curse of God because of sin. Because those are your two options. Bear witness to the humble, meek, enduringly patient, peacemaking Christ by cultivating that shared life and mission that you have with the peacemaking Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are not fun topics. These are not the kinds of things that we, we like to focus on because they're hard. They're dangerous. They're scary. It leads us to, to, 
to have to let go of trying to control ourselves and control those around us and to control what we experience in this world and instead open ourselves up to the experiences of the world to come and to be conduits of those realities, even here where it is dangerous and where it is scary. And so, Lord, convince us that it does not have to be dangerous and it does not have to be scary because, as Jesus said, there is nothing that anyone from take, can take from us that removes us from your hand or that steals away the eternal inheritance that we have been given with the saints in light. Lord, so thoroughly convince us of our participation in the heavenly realities that we would, with boldness that comes through prayer, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, manifesting the Christ who was humble, who was peacemaking, who was meek, who used his strength in service to you and for the benefit of others and not for himself. Father, lead us as a congregation to so embrace and practice the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will seep down into the very nature of who we are and will lead us out of a history and repeated pattern of disunity by being eager and zealous to maintain what Christ purchased by his blood. Convince us, Lord, that unity is a blessing of the gospel that is like the dew of Hermon, that is like beer, the oil that flows down from the beard. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.